Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to once again open your word. When we gather on Sunday mornings, and we have the opportunity to freely gather here without fear of imprisonment, as Paul was imprisoned for preaching Christ, we're grateful for that opportunity. We pray that we would make the most of it. We pray that we would boldly and without hesitation proclaim what your word teaches. And God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. The reality is that if there's anything that's going to happen this morning, it will be because your spirit is at work. And so we're just praying, Lord, we're praying that your spirit would do a work now, that you would soften our hearts and prepare us to listen to what your word might have to teach us. Lord, help me to be faithful. If there's anything I say this morning that is not accurate, I pray that it would fall on deaf ears. But I pray that I would be faithful to preach what your word says and to encourage your precious saints. It's in Christ's name we pray this morning. Amen. Well, in 1988, at the age of 19, Raphael Rowe was arrested in England and charged with murder and aggravated robbery. He was subsequently convicted of the crimes and sentenced to life in prison. The only problem was that his conviction was a wrongful one based on faulty eyewitness testimony. But it wasn't until 12 years later, in July of 2000, that a court of appeals in London actually overturned the conviction and set Rowe free. So all told, he spent 12 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. Now, the story actually has a bit of a happy ending as Rowe's life took a dramatic turn for the better after his release. While he was in prison, he studied journalism through a correspondence, correspondence class, and in the years after, he's gone on to have a very successful journalism career, including multiple stints with the BBC. But nevertheless, it's clear that his wrongful imprisonment still weighs on him greatly. In a 2014 interview, 14 years after he was released, Rowe shared some of his struggles with bitterness. As Rowe put it in the interview, quote, when you're innocent and you're in prison, you're bitter. And you're bitter for the duration of the time that you're in prison. And as Rowe went on to say, even when you're released from prison, you still have to fight against this bitterness that can keep welling up in you. Because as Rowe admitted, the bitterness never leaves you completely. Now, I don't know if there's anyone in here this morning who's been wrongfully convicted of a crime and spent years in prison as a result of their wrongful conviction. I'm guessing probably not although I don't know all of your personal backstories. But statistically speaking, it seems unlikely that anyone in this room has a story that matches that of Raphael Rowe. And so on one level, I don't know that any of us can relate to the emotions that he's experienced or that he continues to experience years later. And yet on another level, I suppose probably all of us can empathize and understand why he was bitter while in prison and why he's still bitter today. I mean, put yourself in his shoes for a second. If you were wrongfully convicted of a crime that you did not commit and put in prison for 12 years, how would you feel? My guess is that bitterness, perhaps even anger and rage would be on your radar also. I feel pretty confident it would be on mine. And that's what makes Philippians 1, 12 to 18 such a powerful and yet strange passage. In Philippians 1, Paul is imprisoned in Rome. And based on what we read in the book of Acts, I think we can safely conclude that Paul was in prison for no good reason. As we saw in the book of Acts, even most of the Roman officials didn't really think that Paul needed to be in prison. But because they wanted to do the uh, favor to the Jewish people, and because they didn't really know what to do with Paul, they just let him languish under guard for years. In reality, I think we can say this, Paul was in prison simply because he was proclaiming Christ. He hadn't actually done anything wrong, or even remotely close to deserving of a prison sentence. They didn't even know what charges to make against him. And yet here he was, imprisoned in Rome for years. If there was anyone who had room to be bitter, surely it was Paul. And yet, oddly enough, in Philippians 1, Paul makes the case that his imprisonment is not a cause for bitterness, but rather it is a cause for joy. 
And that should get our attention. Because the normal response to being imprisoned, and especially for being imprisoned wrongfully, is the one that was articulated by Raphael Rowe. Bitterness. Maybe even anger and frustration. Joy, on the other hand, in the face of such circumstances, is not normal. It's kind of weird, actually. And that's what makes our passage this morning so fascinating. Paul's response to his imprisonment is strange. It's strange. But it's intriguing, too. There's something about his response that should get our attention in a good way. And actually, my hope this morning is that it would get our attention. And it would make us ask the question, why does he respond like that? Because in asking that question, and then hopefully in answering it, I think what we'll discover is that the way that Paul looked at the world and the way he saw things is much different than the way that many of us look at the world and the way that many of us see things. But my prayer this morning is that as we look at the way Paul viewed the world, perhaps we will start to incline ourselves more in his direction. And we will start to understand why he could possibly be joyful even when everything was falling apart. So Philippians 1, 12 to 18, if you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand at this point. Standing is just a simple way we can remind ourselves this is the word of God and as such it is due our attention. So Philippians 1, 12 through the first part of verse 18 is where we'll be this morning. The words will be on the screen if you want to follow along that way or you can just listen as I read or you can look along in your own Bibles. Philippians 1 starting in verse 12, the word of God says this, I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So in this passage, there are a couple of negative things that are happening to Paul, and he is quick to acknowledge both of them. One negative thing that's happening to Paul is that he is imprisoned. Three times in verses 12 to 18, Paul mentions his imprisonment. Now, given that we think Paul is likely writing the book of Philippians while he's imprisoned in Rome between 60 and 62 AD, it's probable that he's under house arrest and he is chained to a Roman soldier. The point is, he has no freedom. He cannot go where he wants to go or do what he wants to do. And Paul is not hiding from this reality. Again, three times in this passage, in verses 13, 14, and 17, he mentions his imprisonment. And he clearly alludes to it on another occasion in verse 16. So Paul's not hiding from the fact that he is in prison. That's one negative reality he's acknowledging in this passage. The second negative reality is that some in the church are trying to make Paul's life miserable. Now, it's a bit mysterious how they're doing this. In fact, we'll return to that later. But somehow they're trying to do something to make his imprisonment worse. So Paul is facing difficulty from the outside. He's imprisoned. But he's also facing difficulty from the inside. Some in the church are trying to make his life miserable. And yet his response, which is so beautifully captured in verse 18, is overwhelmingly a response of joy. And so the question I want us to ask this morning is simply this. How is that possible? How can Paul rejoice, given that he's been in prison for years for something he hasn't really done, for not doing anything wrong? How can he rejoice when on top of his imprisonment, brothers in the church are trying to afflict him and make him miserable? 
How is joy his response to those two things? Because joy does not seem like a normal response. And yet, it's clearly the tone in this passage. And to make things even stranger, Paul's not just taking a joyful perspective himself. He's actively trying to encourage others to take the same perspective about his trials. Given the way the passage starts in verse 12 with Paul saying, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It seems likely that the purpose of this section is for Paul to encourage the Philippians regarding his trials. It's probable that some of them were discouraged that Paul was in prison and even wondering what will happen to the advance of the gospel as a result of this. And so Paul includes this section to encourage them, to let them know it's okay that I'm imprisoned. In fact, more than okay, it's good. It's cause for joy. In other words, what we're saying is this. Paul isn't just being silently optimistic and trying to talk himself into the idea that this is okay. Rather, he's actively encouraging others to be joyful with him in his trials. And that too is strange. Beautifully strange, but strange nonetheless. And so again, the question I want us to entertain this morning is simply, how is this possible? How is it possible that Paul can be joyful in the midst of imprisonment and joyful in the midst of people in the church trying to make his life miserable? I think the answer to that question is actually found in the passage itself as well. And the answer is twofold. I think there are two reasons or two anchors for his soul that Paul was latching onto that enabled him to be joyful even in the midst of really hard circumstances. One anchor is Paul cared more about the advance of the gospel than he did about his own comfort. And the second is that in the midst of his difficulties, Paul trusted God's good and sovereign plan. I think it's important for us this morning to see both of those anchors in this passage so that we can understand why Paul reacted the way he did. So let's start with the first one. Paul cared more about the advance of the gospel than he cared about his own comfort. So again, I think the purpose of this section seems to be that Paul is encouraging the Philippians regarding his own trials. They were concerned about him. They were worried about his imprisonment and what it might mean for the future of the church and for the advancement of the gospel. And so in the midst of their concerns, Paul's first instinct is to encourage them and let them know what's happened to him, his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. Again, this is what we read in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So because of Paul's imprisonment, the gospel is advancing. And in verses 13 to 14, Paul goes on to lay out two ways in which it's advancing. One way in which the gospel is advancing is it's becoming known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all of the rest. This is likely a reference to others in the imperial government that Paul is imprisoned for Christ. This is what we read in verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Again, most likely Paul is under house arrest in Rome. And given what we know about house arrest during this time, Paul's house arrest probably included a Roman guard being chained to his wrist almost constantly. These guards would rotate in increments of four or six hours. And so over the period of a couple of years, Paul would have been chained to a lot of different soldiers. And given his comments in verse 13, it would seem that almost all of these soldiers chained to his wrist at one point or another heard about Jesus. And if you think about this from Paul's perspective, why not talk about Jesus? It's one thing to have a captive audience. It's another thing to be a captive with an audience. If you're sitting next to someone on a plane, you might say, proverbially speaking, that you have a captive audience. But that captive audience can get up and go to the bathroom. Or they can wander off to another part of the plane for a bit. They can even pretend to fall asleep. 
But when a dude is chained to your wrist, there's not much you can do to avoid conversation. You are literally captive to the captor. And apparently Paul is taking full advantage of this. He tells his captors the good news about Jesus. No doubt he's reminding them that God is holy and that we are sinners. And that because we've sinned against the holy God, all of us deserve the righteous wrath of God. But Jesus came to pay the punishment that we deserve to pay. On the cross, he took the wrath that we deserved, and then he rose from the dead, conquering death. That if anyone would turn to Christ in saving faith, they could be rescued from their sin, and they could have peace with God and eternal life. That's the substance of the good news. And no doubt, this is the message that Paul was sharing with these Roman soldiers. That if they would turn to Christ, they could be rescued from their sin. Which, by the way, is just as true today as it was when Paul was sharing it with the Roman soldiers. It's true for everyone in this room as well. If you will turn to Jesus Christ, you can be saved from your sin. This is the news that Paul was sharing with the Imperial Guard. And Paul's sharing with the Imperial Guard is one of the ways the gospel is advancing through his imprisonment. Now, we have no idea how many of these Roman soldiers turned to to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I'm sure there were many that rejected the message. In fact, I'm sure there were many that dreaded being chained to Paul. They thought to themselves, oh, no. I'm going to be chained to Paul. I know he's going to talk about Jesus for hours. Just chain me to the murderer instead. But given Paul's language in verse 12, while some rejected the message, I think we can be confident that some responded as well. And this is one of the ways that the gospel was advancing. But there's a second way that the gospel is advancing through Paul's imprisonment. And that reason is talked about in verse 14. Paul says this, And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, first glance, verse 14 seems a bit odd. How would other Christians become more courageous knowing that Paul's courage had landed him in imprisonment? That seems a bit counterintuitive. But the more you think about the way human relationships work, the more you realize that verse 14 makes sense. To give you an example of what I mean, Let me share a little story about our son Dawson. Our son Dawson loves to do adventurous things. And so one of the things that he wanted to do this summer while his health was good and while we had some ability to go on trips is he wanted to go on some adventures. And one of the adventures he wanted to go on was cliff jumping from waterfalls. Now, if that sounds a little bit crazy to you, I assure you it was. We have some videos, and when I look back, I think that was kind of wild. But we had a guide, and I think it was safe. And one of the things I learned in that process is that people are willing to do hard things if they see others do hard things first. I don't know that everyone in our family was equally excited about jumping off cliffs, but here's what I observed. Once our kids saw their siblings do it or their really old parents doing it, they were a lot more emboldened to jump themselves. There's just something about seeing other people doing hard things that makes you think, I can do that too. If you had a friend that was in about the same shape as you and they lost 50 pounds by changing their diet and exercising, you would think, Yeah, I think I can do that. If you had a friend that you trained with and you ran with on occasion and all of a sudden they ran a marathon, you would probably be more inclined to think, you know, I think I could run a marathon too. If you about to go undergo a medical procedure that you knew was hard and that you'd had a friend go through the same procedure and come out on the other side, okay, you would think I can do this also. The point is it's often easier to do hard things when you've seen other people do hard things first. And this is what Paul is getting at in verse 14. As the Christians in Rome saw Paul suffering well for the gospel, they were emboldened to think, you know, if Paul can do this, we can do it too. If he's courageous, we can be courageous also. 
And so the end result of this is they begin speaking the word without hesitation and without fear. And because they're doing this, the gospel is advancing. So the gospel is advancing, and it's advancing because the imperial guard and all the rest are hearing about Jesus. It's also advancing because other brothers and sisters in Christ are becoming more confident in the Lord as a result of Paul's imprisonment. And so Paul's overall point in verses 12 to 14 simply seems to be this. My imprisonment is actually for the best. It's good that I'm in prison because more people are hearing about Jesus And in that mindset, we clearly see that Paul valued the advance of the gospel more than his own comfort, even more than his own freedom. And that point becomes even clearer in the second section of the passage, which we find starting in verses 15 to 17. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So as mentioned back in verse 14, more Christians in Rome have been emboldened by Paul's imprisonment to share the good news of Christ. And as we see now in verses 15 to 17, some are doing this out of right motives. They love God. They're probably concerned that Paul's in prison, so they want to pick up the slack, the slack form. And yet others, we're told, are preaching the gospel for wrong motives, trying to afflict Paul. And in that, there's a bit of a mystery here. It seems odd that someone think they could antagonize Paul by preaching the gospel. I mean, what exactly is their mindset here? Are they thinking to themselves, we're really going to show Paul, we'll preach the gospel? That doesn't make any sense, does it? So my question is, what's going on here? Well, one thing I think we can say with certainty is this. These bad motives, or these, these bad motive preachers were not preaching a false gospel. If they were preaching a false gospel, Paul would have denounced them. He certainly would not have rejoiced in their preaching. I don't think it's a plausible explanation to say, well, Paul is just willing to overlook their false preaching. I don't think that's what's happening here. The more plausible explanation, I think, is this. These bad motive preachers were preaching the right gospel, but somehow in the process they were trying to put down Paul's ministry. Maybe they were saying things like, you should follow us, not Paul. If Paul's so great, why is he in prison? Why would you follow a guy who's suffering when you can follow us instead? Maybe it's something else, but that seems one of the most plausible explanations we could come up with. Either way, the point is simply that somehow they were trying to make Paul's life miserable. And I think we can all agree, whatever it is they were doing exactly, if they were trying to make his life miserable, that's kind of hard to deal with. I don't know if you've ever had a person in your life who's just out to get you, that they have an axe to grind and you are the axe. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but if you have, it's not pleasant. And it could not have been pleasant for Paul either. And that's why what he says in verse 18 is even more powerful. Again, look at the way the passage ends here. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. For Paul, it did not matter if some were proclaiming the gospel to make his life miserable. The only thing that mattered in his mind is that the good news about Jesus Christ was being proclaimed. And in Paul's statement of verse 18, it's glaringly obvious. Paul cared more about the advance of the gospel than he cared about his own comfort. It did not matter to him if he was imprisoned. It didn't matter if people in the church were trying to make his life miserable. As long as Jesus was being proclaimed, he was rejoicing. 
And this is one of the reasons he was able to be joyful despite his imprisonment and despite his troubles from the church, that he cared more about the advance of the gospel than he did about his own comfort. But I think there's a second reason why Paul was able to rejoice despite his hard circumstances. Second reason is this. In the midst of his difficulties, Paul trusted God's good and sovereign plan. Listen again to the language of verses 15 and 16. Some indeed pray, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Now that phrase, I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, is interesting. Who was it that put Paul there for the defense of the gospel? Well, certainly it's not the Romans. They may have put him in prison, but they didn't put him in prison for the defense of the gospel. And the same would be true of the Jewish leaders. So who is Paul alluding to in verse 16? Who put him there? Or some translations, or some translations translate it, who appointed him to prison? Well, I think the obvious answer is it's God. God is the one who put him there for the defense of the gospel. God is the one who's advancing the gospel despite his imprisonment. And God is the one who's using even those with false motives to advance the gospel also. God is the one who's orchestrating all the events in this passage. What some meant for evil, throwing Paul in prison, God meant for good. The gospel was not advancing in spite of Paul's imprisonment and in spite of his difficulties. The gospel was advancing because of his imprisonment and because of his difficulties. And in that reality, I think we can confidently say this. The sovereign fingerprints of God are everywhere in this passage. He is accomplishing his plan and he is achieving his purposes. And in Paul using the language that he does in verse 16, even the way that Paul talks throughout the rest of the passage, it's clear to us that Paul knows this to be true. That God is the one who is orchestrating all things here. That he is working all things according to the purpose of his sovereign plan. Which is another reason why Paul is able to be joyful despite his imprisonment and despite his difficult circumstances. Because in the midst of his troubles, Paul trusted that God knew what he was doing. So listen, I think it's okay for us to acknowledge that Paul's response in this passage is indeed kind of strange. It's weird to be joyful in spite of wrongful imprisonment, and it's weird to be joyful in spite of people trying to make your life miserable. But I also think it's important that you understand there was a reason for Paul's joy. He cared more about the advance of the gospel than he did his own comfort, and he trusted God's good and sovereign plan. And in saying that, I think it's important that we also understand something else. While Paul's response may have been strange from a worldly standpoint, his response I don't think is strange from a Christian perspective. In fact, I would argue that this is the type of response you would expect from a person who has the Spirit. Which leads me to ask us a question this morning. Are you led by the Spirit in the same way? If you were in Paul's situation, how would you respond? Would you respond like a quote-unquote normal person with bitterness, anger, frustration? Or like Paul, would you respond with joy? Now in asking that, here's the challenge. I think we all know what the answer should be. Right? We all know the answer should be joy. But if we're honest, what the answer should be and what the answer likely would be are not necessarily the same thing. Listen, that's okay. We're all works in progress here. But what I want for us is to get to a place where we could respond to Paul's circumstances in the same way that Paul responded to his circumstances. 
And if we're not there yet, I suspect it's probably because we have work to do in shoring up our foundation. Again, as I said at the beginning here, I think there were two anchors that enabled Paul to have joy in the midst of his imprisonment. Those two foundational truths, that he cared more about the advance of the gospel than his own comfort, and he trusted God's good and sovereign plan. Now the question I would have for us then is simply, do we hold to those same two anchors ourselves? Or perhaps is there more foundational work for us to do? And perhaps the best way to assess where we are is to just ask a couple of diagnostic questions as a follow-up directly related to those two anchors. And so my first diagnostic question is simply this, is we're trying to diagnose where are our hearts? And are we trusting in God in the same way that Paul was? First diagnostic question, do you care more about the advance of the gospel than your own comfort? Do you care about the advance of the gospel more than your own comfort? Paul clearly cared in this passage, it's obvious, he cared more about the advance of the gospel than his own comfort. But the question is, do we? If you knew that more people would hear about Jesus and coming to, come to saving faith if you went to prison, would you be willing to do it? If you knew that your failing health would be a means God would use to draw people to himself, would you be willing to suffer in your health for the sake of the gospel? If you knew that others making your life miserable would actually advance the kingdom, would you be willing to be miserable? If you knew that you would be known as the town weirdo if you started being more bold for Christ, and yet more people would hear about Christ because of your boldness, would you be willing to be known as the weirdo? Now listen, I'm just going to be honest with you here. I don't know that I could answer yes to all of those questions. And that probably says something about me and my idols Namely, that I value comfort, that I value the approval of people. But I think it also says something about my insufficient view of how good the good news actually is. Think about it this way. If you had relatives dying of cancer, if you had a kid or a parent who was dying of cancer, and the only way they could get the cure is for you to go to prison, would you go? Or, to use another example, would you be willing to be thought a weirdo if it meant that you being a weirdo actually meant that one of your relatives could be cured of a terminal disease? Would you jump into a lake to save your kid from drowning even if it meant that you would be paralyzed the rest of your life? I would guess that we would answer those questions more quickly by saying yes, because I think we're more likely to sacrifice for someone physically than to sacrifice to see someone saved spiritually. Now, perhaps that speaks to the nature or the hidden nature of spiritual work. We can see physical results. When I jump in the lake, I can rescue someone. I can see that. And sometimes the spiritual results are hidden. I understand that. And so for that reason, it's sometimes easier to prioritize the physical over the spiritual. But I also think our reluctance to suffer for the advancement of the gospel also says something about our insufficiency of understanding the good news about Jesus Christ. Namely, we don't understand how serious our sin problem actually is, and we don't understand how great the love of Christ actually was that he would die for us in order to rescue us from our problem. Hear this. It's a far more serious thing to lack peace with God than it is to have terminal cancer. Because if we have terminal cancer, it may kill our bodies. But if we do not have peace with God, our souls are in danger of the fires of eternal hell. Or to say it more positively, if someone cures our cancer, they may cure our bodies temporarily. But if we accept the good news about Jesus Christ, we have the eternal joy of being with Jesus forever. 
Listen, if we value our comfort more than we value the advancement of the gospel, I suspect it's because we've not yet fully understood and embraced how good the good news actually is. We are far worse sinners than we could ever imagine, but we are also far more loved than we could ever imagine to. So if we can't earnestly answer that first question in the affirmative, do we care more about the advancement of the gospel than our own comfort? Perhaps the place to start is by meditating more on the greatness of the good news about Jesus. We are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. Second diagnostic question. Do we trust in God's good and sovereign plan even when it doesn't make sense to us? Again, we're trying to diagnose here. Would we respond the same way Paul did? Are we capable of that same type of joy? We're trying to figure out, do we cling to these same foundational truths that Paul did? And so the question again is, do we trust God's good and sovereign plan even when it doesn't make sense to us? I want you to think about the setup here in Philippians 1 for a second and assume that you don't know how this story ends. The setup is this. One of the most effective evangelists and church planners of all time has been thrown in jail. All right, so again, for just a second here, I want you to pretend like you don't know how this story ends. But given that setup, one of the most effective church planners and evangelists of all time has been thrown in jail, would you expect that the gospel would increase and advance or that it would slow down and not advance as quickly? Well, the answer, of course, is that you would expect the spread of the gospel to slow down. I mean, think about it this way. If you took the best player off a team, you would expect the team to get worse. If you took the best musician out of a band, you would expect the band to get worse. If you took the best administrator out of a school, you would expect the school to get worse. So you would expect that taking the best evangelist out of the picture and putting him in prison would slow down the progress of the gospel. And yet not only does the gospel advance in spite of Paul's imprisonment, it advances because of Paul's imprisonment. And in that, I think we're reminded of something here. Just because something doesn't make sense doesn't mean that God's plan has failed. Sometimes he's just working in hidden and unexpected ways. I can testify to this personally. When Dawson first got sick, our son, it seemed to us that his sickness made little sense from a gospel standpoint. How would we be able to meet lost people and spend time with them, given that so much of our time was now being diverted to medical appointments? How would we be able to be as creative in trying to advance the gospel now that all of our resources and time and money were being directed towards medical things? And what about Dawson himself? How would his sickness be good for him? But three years later, I think we can objectively say that not only has God worked in spite of Dawson's sickness, but he has worked because of his sickness. Some of the richest opportunities we've had to talk about Christ have come as a result of our son being sick. Whereas before, we were whispering about the gospel. And I I don't mean that literally. We weren't like, Jesus can save you. We weren't doing that. I'm just saying when we were talking, people were just hearing us whisper. But now that Dawson's been sick, it seems that our talking has become put on a megaphone. That people are willing to listen to us talking about God's faithfulness because they've seen it. On top of that, I would say this, God has done unspeakable things in our son. There are times where he says things, and I think to myself, he is more spiritually mature than I am. And that's not in spite of his illness. Trust me, it's because of it. And so even though it didn't make sense to us at the time, we can say confidently, God was at work. Just like we can see here in Philippians 1. 
And that gives us confidence regardless of what may come our way in the future. As many of you know, since we sent out an email earlier this week, my wife's health, Tanya, has taken a really negative turn in the last month. She's got something going on with her lungs, and it's hard for her to do anything right now. In April, she was running a half Ironman triathlon, and now in September, most days, she can barely move across the room without needing a break. And if I'm honest with you, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Tanya's energy has been a huge help in advocating for Dawson during his illness problems. And on top of that, her energy has been a huge reason why over the last couple of years, she's been able to meet all kinds of people and talk about Jesus. In fact, she's had more opportunities to speak about Christ in the last couple of years than in all of our married years combined. And now it would seem she's been sidelined. And it makes me wonder, what is God doing? But when I think about Philippians 1, sending Paul to jail didn't make sense if the goal was spreading the gospel. Or for that matter, Dawson getting sick didn't make much sense to me either at the time if the goal was spreading the gospel. And yet it's obvious in both of those cases, in Philippians 1, and with our son, looking back, God had a plan all along. And that gives me confidence that even though I can't see what he's doing now, I know he's doing something in Tanya's situation too. And I hope it gives you confidence, whatever situation you might be facing. Listen, I don't know what you're going through. I suspect some of you are going through really hard things. Maybe much harder than what we're going through. And maybe right now, even this morning, you're wondering, what is God up to? And the honest truth is, I don't know. But here's what I can say. Even when it doesn't make sense, God is always up to something. And the primary reason I know this to be true, and I know he cares for us, is because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. If Jesus died for our sins, then we can be confident if you are in Christ, he will never leave you or forsake you. He's already demonstrated his love for you in the most profound way possible. Jesus took the punishment for your sin. So church, you can trust God's good and sovereign plan even when it doesn't make sense. Because he knows what he's doing and he has a track record to prove it. And because Paul knew that to be true, and because he cared about the advance of the gospel more than he did his own comfort, he was able to be joyful even when he shouldn't have been. Even when it was weird. Here's my prayer for us this morning. I hope we can be weird too. That we can be joyful even when trials and difficulties come. And we can do so because we value the advance of the gospel more than we value our own comfort. And because we trust God's good and sovereign plan even when it doesn't make sense. Because we know his character is good. And he demonstrated it by sending his son to die for our sins. Let's pray this morning. Father, we trust you. In the midst of life's uncertainties and troubles, we trust you. We think of Paul, put in prison. Seems like almost a death knell for the early church, and yet it was actually a means by which the gospel advanced further and further. And in that we're reminded, you know what you're doing. And so Lord, whatever people in this room may be going through this morning, and I know there are some people going through some really hard things. I pray that they would entrust themselves to you. 
that they would care more about the advance of the gospel than their own comfort. And they would trust that you have a good and sovereign plan. And they would do this because they've seen it in Scripture, perhaps they've experienced it in their own life, and certainly they can look to the cross and be reminded that you indeed love us. And you demonstrate this by sending your Son to die for us while we were still your enemies. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. A lot of what we just talked about this morning, and in particular this idea that God's faithfulness is most demonstrated at the cross, it's appropriate that we come to the Lord's table this morning. Because at the Lord's table, we are reminded that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could have life. And so this morning, uh, let me, I know this is only the second time we do this. Let me explain how we're going to do this. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to give you some time to reflect. In fact, Ana's going to come up and she's going to lead us in a song this morning. Well, she's not going to lead us in a song. She's going to sing a song for us while we reflect. So we're not participating. We're just listening. And while that's happening, whenever you're ready, you can come up to one of the five tables located around the sanctuary. There's one here, there's two over there, and then two in the back corners as well. And you can take the bread, and you can take the cup, and you can take it back with you, with you to your seat. We're all going to take it together at the end. So, again, the plan here, while this song is taking place, at some point, whenever you feel ready, you can get up and grab your items, and then we'll take it together at the end. As always, I would say this, if you're not a Christian, you're here today, we would tell you, please do not participate in the Lord's Supper. This is reserved for those who are following Christ. However, if you're not a Christian, know that the gospel is freely offered to you today. Everything we've been talking about, Christ dying on the cross for our sins, that is freely offered to you if you'll turn to Christ in saving faith. If you are a Christian, though, we would ask you to joyfully participate in the Lord's Supper with us. Because it's a reminder to us that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could have peace with God. And that is worth celebrating. So let me pray and then... Uh, and it will come up and sing, and then again, when you're ready, you can head to one of the tables here. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to participate together in the Lord's Supper this morning. We pray that you would help to use this to bring about joy in our lives. As we reflect on what Jesus has done, we pray that this would give us confidence. You know what you're doing. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen.